All right. Hey, good morning. How are we? Wonderful. Wonderful. Good to see you in vacation season. It is bright. It is sunny. It is full of pollen outside. Um, But we are here, and it is always a good morning when we get to come open God's Word together. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Ben France. I serve as one of the pastors here at Vintage. I mean, we are so glad to see you, so glad to be jumping back into our series on Acts. If you were here with us last week, um, thanks for coming back. Last week was a little bit different. We laid out some of the vision that we're going to be headed to uh, kind of towards as a church. But today we're jumping back into Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. So you can go ahead, start getting there in your Bibles. But I'm going to catch us up. We took a week off. Sometimes you forget what happened two weeks ago. If you're like me, you forget what happened five minutes ago. So two weeks ago, uh, we saw Paul as he was traveling to Ephesus, right? Uh, The majority of Acts kind of focuses on Paul and his missionary journeys. Uh, But while he's traveling, the, the story kind of pans over to a guy named Apollos. And Apollos was a man who was maybe familiar with the scriptures, but he had some teachable moments with two characters, Priscilla and Aquila, and kind of through this teachable spirit that he had, he learned, he came to know Jesus, how to handle the scriptures more accurately, and God used Apollos to be a powerful witness to the Ephesians. Man, as I was uh, preparing this week, um, not just in the text, but in just other things I was doing in life, I had some teachable moments. Uh, I had quite a few of them. I'm in the middle of a bathroom remodel. Anyone ever remodeled their bathroom themselves? You ever done it being I've never done this before? It's going to YouTube and a lot of sweat and tears. That's me. General contractor, plumber, frustrated dad. Right here. I had some teachable moments. I've been working on my bathtub for what feels like 10 years at this point. And it's not because I've done anything significantly wrong. It's always, oh, it takes longer to demo than you think. And then you get it out. And you realize, oh, well, the subfloor isn't perfectly level. So I have to go level the subfloor. And so you do that. And you're like, all right, now time to do the plumbing. But then the way that your plumbing's set, the tub surround isn't going to fit perfectly. So then you have to rip the plumbing out. And of course, you go into the store and you buy all the parts and you try to put it together. And you say, oh, wait, I missed forgot this one part. It's actually, uh, I need a female adapter, not a male adapter. And everyone's like, I don't know what that means. But the point is, is I did a lot of things where I had to sit and I had to learn and I had to be teachable. Thank you, Home Renovations DIY, our guy, Jeff. If you know who I'm talking about, if you've ever done a home, home remodel of any capacity, you know who I'm talking about. He's the best. I should send him a thank you letter all the way out to Canada. I mean, that's some teachable moments. And then I went to prepare this message. And if you're familiar with Acts 19, if you're not teachable, if you're not ready to dive in, to start peeling back the layers of the onion, like Shrek would say, um, it can become a bit of a doozy. It really can. So this morning, we're going to look at two experiences, two experiences rather, that Paul has in Ephesus. And what we're going to notice is uh, while the mission is always the same, The mission is to always make disciples. Sometimes the way that we've drawn it up in our heads, the way that we think it's going to go, our strategy, our plan of attack doesn't always line up with the way God wants it to happen. Our plan doesn't always go, well, according to our plan. 
God's plan is higher, though. It's always better. It's always to make disciples, but how that plays out isn't always the way that we drew it up. That's what we're going to see here in Acts 19. It's going to be two very different experiences, and then we're going to tie them all up at the end. You ready? Say, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at, looking at verses 1 through 10. It says this, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Verse 7, there are about 12 men in all. Let's pause there. Here we go. I said we're going to look at two experiences. Paul has them this morning, and we're going to end. We're going to tie them together. Here we go. Experience number one, a divine appointment with instant fruit. It's a divine appointment with instant fruit. Fruit. Throughout Paul's ministry, we, we really see, we're going to see it actually later this morning, a strategy that he has to go and establish the church and make disciples. If you've um, been tracking with us in Acts, typically what you see is Paul enter into a city, and do you know where he goes? He goes and finds a synagogue. He goes and finds the place where he knows that there'd be a good amount of, of uh, people, Jews and Greeks, who are open to hearing and receiving teaching. So he would go, he'd set up shop there, he would do ministry. Typically, it would be fruitful for a season, and then like nine times out of ten, something explodes and he has to be run out or gets beaten up on his way out. We're actually going to see that happen again, and not this week, but the week after. He enters a city, he finds a synagogue where there would be the people open to receiving the word. He teaches from it. But what we're, we're going to see here, what we just saw here is that Paul's typical series of events, it gets a little derailed. It's a little wrench thrown into that, that whole plan that he has. God places a divine appointment in his path. If um, you haven't been tracking with us. We, we use the language of divine appointments quite a bit here. And uh, basically, a divine appointment is are those experiences, those moments where you're going about your day, your week, and God places a person or a situation kind of in front of you that you weren't looking for, that you weren't expecting, and he places that person there, and you have an opportunity right kind of there in that moment, even though you weren't expecting it to be a witness, to share Christ, to Meet a need. In a very kind of bizarre story, that's what we see right here. Paul's traveling into Ephesus. That's modern-day Turkey. It's the, the largest city Paul had ministered to yet. It kind of sat near the coast and was significant for trade and commerce. That's just kind of a fun fact that you want to file back there to your Rolodex so you can like impress the person you're going on a date with this week who's also a Bible nerd. I don't know. Keep it. So he sets up shop. Like I said, there's a pattern. But as Paul is arriving, as he's traveling, he says he runs into these 12 guys that the Bible calls disciples. It's the word that they use there. And look what happens. Look at this interaction. We're going to read it again. Verse 2. So he meets these 12 guys and he says, um, these 12 disciples, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. 
He said, well, into what have you been baptized? John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Remember when I said I had some teachable moments this week? Remember when I said that this is kind of one of those onion passages, you got to peel back the layers? Right there. But we just read that chunk of verses. That's what I'm talking about. There's a lot in there. If you grew up, I went to Moody Bible Institute. It's a pretty conservative, reformed place. We're a Baptist church. This passage doesn't exactly fit the little theology box that I've created for myself. It's one of those, it's here, it's complicated. It's kind of a one-off situation. What do we do with it? If we... Um, Look at it for too long without careful observation, without careful study. It's one of these um, passages in Scripture that could trip us up. There's guys called disciples. That's what the Bible says. But they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And then we see them being baptized a second time. And then they're speaking in tongues and they're prophesying. Well, what do we do with all of that? What do you do when what you know to be true doesn't exactly line up with the thing that you're reading? Well, I'm going to show us it with some time taken to carefully observe the text and pull it apart. You're going to see it. Actually, it's, it's really, really cool. So you with me? You with me? Put our thinking caps on this morning. Take some notes. We're going to just pass over the more difficult parts of Scripture. We're going to walk through them. We're going to learn from them. We're going to see how amazing it really is. So there's a few things we need to understand to really understand what's going on here in the text. The first thing is this. we got to remember that Acts is a transitional book, and the Holy Spirit was still a relatively new concept to these people. What do I mean by that? So when I say Acts is a transitional book, what I'm saying is that it bridges the gap between the Old Testament age in the New Testament age, or what we would call the church age, right? It's the time where people were still kind of learning what it means to no longer be under the law. Remember kind of Genesis all the way through the rest of the Old Testament to pay for your sins. There were sacrifices that needed to be made. Then you get to the New Testament and Jesus comes. He fulfills the law. He pays uh, or he, uh, he lays down his own life as the ultimate sacrifice so that we're no longer under that law, but we're under grace, under Christ's sacrifice. But this is that time period where we're kind of transitioning. Christ had come, he had lived a sinless life, he had died, he had paid for the sins, but the church, the believers, the people, the world were still trying to wrap their heads around that. I remember the whole time Jesus is saying, hey, I'm leaving, but the Holy Spirit is going to come. And then it comes in Acts chapter two. We're only in Acts chapter 19. The Holy Spirit hadn't come and indwelled believers for very long. The world was large, still is large. You can't just like write an article and send it out or tweet something or shoot a video and put it in MailChimp and blast it to a billion people. You can't do that. This is a transitional period. Remember the Holy Spirit had just recently come, had recently began dwelling within the people of God. And look at the text. The guys clearly had missed that memo. Have you received the Holy Spirit? What's their response? The what? Who's that? Come again? It's all new. 
The early church didn't have the completed Bible to teach them about the Holy Spirit. Man, how blessed are we to have the entirety of God's word. Everything that he wants to reveal about himself is written right here in front of us. And we have the privilege of studying it and learning it. But these people didn't have that yet. So what's going on here? What's going on with the, I'm going to lay hands on you and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on with that? Well, how about this? See, during this transitional period, we, we see God do some really supernatural things through the apostles that we don't really see in the rest of the New Testament. Why? Well, I would argue, and this isn't everybody's view, but this is my view. I would argue that the Lord used the apostles in this period for the purpose of teaching the people about the Holy Spirit and to confirm the reality that the Holy Spirit had in fact come just as Jesus had promised. What we're seeing is an abnormal occurrence under abnormal circumstances that God uses to teach and affirm who the Holy Spirit is and the fact that he had in fact come. One of my favorite things that I uncovered as I was studying this, that even the more complex passages where you see laying on hands and baptism and then Holy Spirit is even the harder ones to wrestle with point to Jesus Christ. All of scripture points to Jesus Christ. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that's great. And I'm looking at all of you with blank stares because your mind's like, what is happening right now? So we're going to keep moving. You with me? Here's the second thing I want us to understand. These men were followers of John the Baptist who had been baptized by John the Baptist. When it says they were disciples, what that text means is they were disciples of John. This isn't the only time we see that John has had disciples. In John chapter 1, when Jesus calls his first disciples, they were guys who were with John, Andrew, right? These guys were disciples of John the Baptist. They weren't Christians yet, so they weren't baptized as Christians yet. They had been baptized by John. See, John had a whole different meaning behind baptism, and I'm not going to go, we don't have the time to like dig super deep into it, but... On the surface, this is basically what it is. John would baptize people in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. John's whole ministry was about pointing people to the one that was coming after him. And now Jesus, now we're on the other side of the cross. Jesus had come, but these guys weren't following him yet. We don't know why. We don't know if it was just a lack of understanding or a lack of belief. But the point is, is that these guys were following John. They were waiting for the Messiah. Their baptism pointed to that, but they weren't Christians yet. So what happens? Look at verse 4. It says, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what's going on here? They hear the truth of the gospel. Paul tells them about Jesus, and what's their response? I'm in. Let's get baptized. Believer's baptism. There are some areas of Christianity that like to take this passage and say, well, there's two baptisms now, and then a whole lot of things. This is actually the only place in all of Scripture that we see people baptized twice. And it's a very clear distinction. They were baptized under John, under a whole different ballgame, not as believers, but now they've given their lives to Christ. They accept him for who he is. And their response is the response that all believers should have upon salvation. Baptism. 
When you walked in, these were on your, uh, these things were on your, your chairs. Thank you, Adam Sacco, for putting these together. Adam, uh, you guys seen that Spider-Man movie when Ned's like, I'm the man in the chair. That's Adam. Everyone say, thanks, Adam. Appreciate you, guy. So this is just super simple. Um, maybe you've heard me get on my baptism soapbox before, and if you have, I apologize. I'm about to do it again. Man, we see all throughout Scripture the immediate response to salvation is baptism. And somewhere along the line, the modern church has taken baptism, and we've decided in our heads that I'm going to give my life to Jesus, and then I'm going to wait a while. And I don't really know I'm going to wait a while, but maybe it's to, to learn a little bit more. Maybe it's because I just feel like I need to, to really be ready or, or whatever. And then we put baptism off as something kind of down the road, secondary, if, if we're going to even do it at all. But the reality is, is if you look at Scripture, 10 times out of 10, what you're going to see is baptism, um, it doesn't save you, but it is a step of obedience. God wants you to be baptized. And in Scripture, we see it happen pretty much immediately after salvation. That time period where it's, well, I got to learn some more. I got to do this. No, there, we, there's, no, there's no other things. The only prerequisite to water baptism is salvation. Um, so if you haven't been baptized as a believer, my question to you is why not? I understand it's nervy. I understand that it's a kind of a bizarre thing, but man, I really want to challenge you. I really want to encourage you. If you're in Christ today, um, baptism isn't going to save you more or make you more spiritual. No, baptism is a, is a step of obedience that God wants you to take. And we have a lot more about it right here on this little sheet. You can scan the QR code and let us know that you want to be baptized. You can pull me aside afterwards and say, Ben, I don't understand. Tell me more about it. You can find any of us. I would love to walk through really what baptism is and, and why it's important, man. But I want to encourage you to do it. It's encouraging to the church. It's encouraging to you. I've never baptized someone and they got out of the water and said, man, I really regret that. That was terrible. Never once. Maybe if you're afraid of water. But I believe two seconds, boom, boom, Done. I ever told you the story where I like took the kid who was like 10 pounds soaking wet and like suplexed him into the water? Can I tell you the story real quick? Just really, really quick. Okay, kid, this is not in my notes. Kid named Cody Camp. I love Cody. He was like this big, 60 pounds soaking wet, sixth grade kid, comes to me, gives his life to Jesus, comes to me, Pastor Ben, I want to be baptized. Let's do it. So we like kind of go through the little process. We talk through it. We, uh, we line up his baptism. I <laughs> get him in the tank. And uh, it was one of those ones where you're like, it's like a, like a big whirlpool. I was really, like, I was spoiled. And so I'm like in the water. And so beforehand, I'm like, Cody, here's how, here's how we do this. Um, I'm going to put my hand here, my hand here. All I need you to do is pretend like you're sitting in a chair, just like this. Just bend your knees like you're sitting in a chair. That's going to help me get you under and get you up, and it's going to be great. Well, Cody gets in the water. He stands there. And uh, Cody, because your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Cody doesn't decide to drop his weight to sit. Cody decides he's like floating in the water. I'm kind of holding it up. That he's just going to lift his knees up, which means my like instinctive bendness is like I got to catch this kid. But he weighs like two pounds, 
So I like pick him up just instinctively. He comes up three quarters of the way out of the water, but I still have to get him under. And so I lift Cody up and what it looks like, I, I gotta, I'm sure there's a video of it still somewhere. <laughs> Poor kid. I pick him up, I'm like I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pow! And he's like back hits the bottom of the tank. The thing splashes up everywhere. It's one of the, it's one of the highlights of my entire ministry career. I promise if you come to me and say, Pastor Ben, I wanna be baptized. It's a step of obedience. I'm really nervous. I will not do that to you as long as you listen to the directions that I give you on how to be baptized. All bets are off if you don't. Man, but truthfully, it is a beautiful step of obedience. Baptism doesn't save you. It is an outward picture of an inward decision. I would encourage every single person today who is in Christ that hasn't gotten in the tank, man, what are you waiting for? I'll fill it up today. There's still some confetti in there from Easter. That's okay. Just a little extra spiritual. I'm joking. It's a powerful picture, right? Paul runs into these guys on his way to Ephesus and he has this kind of bizarre interaction that we, that we believe or that I believe um, points to Christ. But how does that change the way that we live? How do you look at that and say, okay, maybe, maybe you are a baptized believer in Christ. What do we do with stories like this that are kind of a little bit odder and not as straightforward as the other ones? Well, how about this? Paul wasn't planning an impromptu baptism before he got into Ephesus. But God was. That was not Paul's strategy. That was not on his radar. Hey man, what are you going to do on your way in here? I don't know, baptize 12 guys. We talk about divine appointments, the unplanned moments where God places someone in your path to be an opportunity to be a witness. And I was thinking about Paul and his life and I was, as I was sitting in my and like my local coffee shop that I go to all the time now, it's called Fresh Start Community Through Coffee. I love that place. And I was spending a lot of time thinking about this and, and wondering to myself, and I talk about these divine appointments, like why have I not seen any lately? Why haven't I? I'm sitting in my cozy chair and the same little corner that I always sit in, and I, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, and there's a lot of applications that we can draw from this, um, but just, I just want to talk about one. Is that okay? We can pick one. Why haven't I seen the Lord? The Lord convicted me this week is because I believe that my comfort has turned into complacency. My comfort's turned into complacency. And that's how the Lord convicted me this week, and I believe that I'm not the only person in that boat. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at, let's look at the text first. We, we know that Paul had been to Ephesus before, just a chapter ago. He had a quick stint there. Um, we know that it was a city that he cared about, that he desired to go back to. We know that there's Priscilla and Aquila. There's always some, some believers there that he would have rubbed shoulders with, people that he would have known. This was a place where, you know, Paul had had, had his reps, right? He knew, I'm going to go to the synagogue. I'm going to preach. I got some friends there. It's a city that I love. There's a sense of comfort there. Paul could have easily just kept his head down, had his plan, kind of know where he's going. He's been here before, right? And just missed the opportunity. And I wonder, how many times have I done that? I'm sitting in the same coffee shop with the same people. My neighbors are at the table next to me. I'm getting to know my community. It's great. And I thought to myself, man, how many opportunities that God just placed in front of me that I didn't catch because I just wasn't paying attention. I was comfy. I'm good. I, I think we live in Western Pennsylvania, right? How many people have like moved away and come back? Me. I do like six times. Every few years I seem to do it. Pittsburgh suburbs, 
chances are that you lived here and your parents have lived here and maybe their parents have lived here too. You see a lot of that in our towns and that's a beautiful thing. I love a close-knit community. But I think sometimes we run the risk of getting too comfortable and because we know everybody, because we're familiar with the same streets, same routines, there's a little part of us, even subconsciously, believes that God's not going to do anything divine. God's not going to do anything supernatural. This is my town. I, I know these people. I know where their hearts are at. I hope that resonates with someone, not, not just me. Man, when we've been seeing the same people, same conversations, driving the same roads, working the same job, living in the same neighborhood, our level of comfort in those places you know, has turned. Maybe once a heart that broke for those people in those places turns a little complacent to where we're not even looking for those divine appointments anymore. Paul could have done this. He'd been to Ephesus at least once before. He had friends there. We know that he had a desire to go back and visit. He could have kind of kept his head down, full steam ahead on his plan and missed the whole moment. But Paul was on a mission. Paul was on a mission to make disciples. And when God really threw a, a wrench into his plan, Paul didn't miss it because Paul never forgot that the mission was to make disciples. At the end of the day, the mission is to make disciples. And God is going to choose kind of the ins and outs of how that's going to happen. And we have to be open to it. And we have to pay attention. We've got to stay on our toes. We've got to look for those divine appointments and not become complacent. All right, experience number two. You ready? That's one. Here we go. Number two, a plan and a pivot. Seen that Friends episode? Pivot. Nope, just me. That's like the only Friends episode I've ever seen. <laughs> Hands up. Yeah, you liars. I knew it. You just leave me up here hanging. A plan with a pivot. That was about half the room. The other half of the room hasn't seen it. There's an episode where like, that's like the whole thing. They just... They're putting a couch into an apartment or something, and they just pivot the whole time. It's not that good. Uh, verse 8, here we go. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now this, this is a little more like the Paul stories we've been seeing over the last year. He's back to the plan, right? We said it earlier. Paul's strategy when he comes into his city is to find the local synagogue, post up shop, begin teaching, do ministry out of that. This was the hub where he did ministry in Ephesus for a brief moment back in chapter 18. And I love this. I love this little detail. Don't miss it. I love how... Luke, the author, um, describes the way Paul was doing ministry. Remember, we talked about complacency. We talked about how when we're familiar, when we're comfortable, it's easy to kind of phone it in. But Paul did not do that. He's given it his all. Look, it says that he, let me see if I can find it because I don't have it in my notes. Um, verse 18, 19. Oh yeah, it's right here. I have it on my, on my iPad. It says that he was... Um, Speaking boldly, he was reasoning, and he was persuading them about the kingdom of God. You don't use words like speaking boldly, reasoning, and persuading with guys that are just kind of like, I'm here, I'm going to clock in, I'm going to clock out. No, Paul is giving it everything he's got. 
But nonetheless, we've seen this before many, many times. Whenever the word goes out, whenever we are bold for Christ, what can we expect? Opposition. Opposition. Words go, the word of the Lord goes out, opposition rises. We see that right in verse 9, right? But when the son became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. There are people hearing what Paul had to say, and they caused a ruckus. It says they were stubborn. It means they were unable to be reasoned with. You ever gone in an argument with a stubborn person? It doesn't matter what you say. You could say two plus two equals four, and if they are stubborn, they're going to tell you No. It said they continued in unbelief. This is a tough one. They continued in unbelief. Not once, not twice, not even three times. These were people that regardless of what Paul had to say, regardless of the truth of God's word, they refused to accept it. They were stubborn. They were anti. And if you're like me, you can look at this and say, okay, I I can see that. It's a very defensive Response. The sad truth is sometimes we do witness, we do share Christ, and people just reject it. But what I find really interesting is that these people didn't just stay in a defensive position. They didn't just put a wall up. No, they, they went on the attack. They took an offensive approach. It says it spoke evil of the way before the congregation. I think it's really cool. Um, we call ourselves Christians, but the truth is, is we only hear that word. We only hear us being called Christians a couple of times throughout Scripture, what we see way more is that we are people or followers of the way. It's a fun fact. These people weren't just, hmm, not for me, Paul. No. They began speaking evil of the Christians. And for three months, Paul kept preaching. Or was it two months? I think I had a typo in there. Doesn't matter. A period of time, Three months. No, I was right. So for three months, Paul continues to speak boldly. He's going for it. These people are refusing. They're being stubborn. But eventually, the opposition got really loud. The synagogue became too difficult of a place to preach because of these people. And he decided that the best way to continue ministry was to get away from the opposition. Look what he does. Verse 9. It says, when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. Synagogue becomes too toxic. What's he do? He pivots. He goes and he rents a lecture hall owned by a guy named Tyrannus. Fun fact about him, did you know that uh, Tyrannus means tyrant? We translated that into English. He said he, he, went and, uh, he went and rented the tyrant's lecture hall. What I think is so interesting, what's fun about that is um, most scholars that study this text would tell you that that probably wasn't his real name. It was probably the nickname that his students gave him. So let me ask you this. How hard-nosed do you need to be to where you go down in biblical history as the tyrant? Dude, I had some tough math teachers. Mrs. Cobb almost failed seventh grade because of Mrs. Cobb. But she wasn't a tyrant. She was a sweet lady. Not Tyrannus. Bad dude. Everyone say bad dude. I actually don't even know if that's true. He could have been a wonderful person, and the students just didn't like him. So don't quote me on that one. But nonetheless, he rents this place out and uses it as a new home base. And look what happens. He ends up staying there for two years. 
so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word. Asia, it's massive. How big is Asia? Everyone say massive. It's insane. What happens right here that the Lord used that moment is, it's crazy. I'm going to tell you why right now. Just follow me for a second. So I'm not going to take you to it, but we see later in Scripture that while Paul was in Ephesus, he, he provided for himself. Paul worked a job. He was a tent maker by trade. So to rent a hall, you have to pay rent, right? Well, it turns out being a traveling evangelist like Paul wasn't exactly going to pay the bills. So for these two years that he's here, he sets up shop and he makes tents to pay for himself, to buy himself food, clothing, shelter, to rent the lecture hall. But on top of that, Tyrannus, this guy, the tyrant, would have been lecturing during the day. It's not like Paul had exactly like the, 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 the great time slot. He would have been like 2 a.m. on public access television. That's what's available to Paul at this point. So he's working all day, provide for himself. Tyrannus is doing his thing. He's lecturing in the hall, talking about whatever he's talking about. So there's really only two times that Paul could have used this hall. It would have been during a siesta. If you go to a foreign country, most of the time, if laborers will take the hottest portion of the day, it's like a... Think of it as like an extended lunch or after work hours, right? 5 p.m. hits, Tyrannus is done, Paul sets up shop. In the synagogue, he could have preached whenever he wanted. I love it. It doesn't really give a certain time of day or days of the week where Paul would walk on into the synagogue. He's kind of went in and did his thing. I wonder what that was like. So why do I take time to point this out? Well, Paul, like you, had a day job. In that time for ministry, he had to do after hours. But God did more through Paul with less hours in a neutral location than he did with Paul full-time inside the synagogue. Now, hear me when I say this. That is not meant for us in any way, shape, or form to discount the importance of the church or to discount the importance of the body of Christ coming together to worship but I pointed out because many of you live super busy lives. You have jobs, you have friends, you have kids, whatever, but never, ever, ever underestimate how God, how much God can do through the willing person with a busy schedule. It's okay if you're busy. It is. That's God's plan for your life. But you don't have to be a pastor or work in full-time ministry to win souls for Christ. God doesn't call everyone to vocational ministry. You can be in the marketplace as a stay-at-home mom in school and still be used to have a, be used in a mighty way with a limited amount of time and energy. Paul went to Ephesus with a plan, but he had to pivot. And that pivot gave him less hours, less concentrated time, but God used him in an increased way because he didn't let the pivot derail the mission. Sometimes when you're on mission for Christ, stuff hits the fan. Anyone ever been there before? God, you're calling me to this person, to this place. I'm on mission for you in this thing. And then you get there and the whole thing explodes. Take one step forward and two steps back. You feel like God has given you the spiritual gift of pivoting because nothing ever goes the way that you think. You're not on plan A, B, or C at this point. You're on plan T, U, V. As soon as you make the plan, it blows up. It feels like it's obstacle after obstacle. My encouragement to you is... Don't give up. Paul had to pivot. Do you think Paul was planning on hanging out and making tents for two years and 
renting a lecture hall and having a group of people who are trying to run him out of the city. And No, he had to pivot. What we're going to see next week is that even after a season of good ministry, guess what happens? There's a riot, and he has to pivot again. If it's going to happen to Paul, it's going to happen to us. My encouragement to you isn't to give up. It's to keep going. Paul had a whole spectrum of ministry experience all inside the same city, in the same season, in the same community. I said before, I think when God has us planted in one place, when we're rubbing shoulders with the same people, same routine, same day-to-day, we can get complacent and forget that he does instill fact, or does still, in fact, work supernaturally. But when God's plan doesn't match the way we thought it was going to go, you know, on the flip side, we can get discouraged. We can't give up. Hear me when I say this. It's okay to go back to the drawing board. It is. You're on mission for Christ. The strategy, the, 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 your approach, the way that you think that God's going to open the door isn't opening. That's okay. Go back to the drawing board. I have some people in my life where I'm not on plan A, B, or C. I'm on plan T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z, A, A, B, B, C, C. God doesn't call you to be an expert. God doesn't call you to be the greatest strategist in the whole wide world. God isn't telling you you need to go sit down and get your notebook out and write out your five-year plan to reach people. No, God, God's just calling you to be faithful. Be faithful with the opportunities, with the people, with the place that he's put in your path. Even when things don't look like they're going to go the way that you think that they should or that they are, just be faithful. Paul had less time, less man hours, had to work a job. But guess what? Did you see what the result was? It wasn't just Ephesus heard the word of the Lord. All of Asia did. The whole thing. Less time, less hours, increased fruit. Band, you can come up. Ben asked me uh, before the service, what's our cue to come back up? And I said, I don't know yet, but I'll make it clear. That was it. <laughs> man, as they come up, I, I just want to just close with some encouragement, man. If you've been in a season that's like that, where every season it feels like every time you try to reach someone, it, it blows up, I want to encourage you. Man, I want to encourage you to never forget that you can still be used to bring harvest, not just be the professional seed sower receive water. God can use you to bring the harvest. But if God does call you to be a professional seed sower, that's okay. Because only he has the power to provide the fruit, to grow the fruit, to produce the fruit. That's not on you. He just calls you to be faithful. Here's a, here's a pro tip. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Uh, sowers and harvesters and waterers all get the same heavenly reward. At the end of the day, when you are faithful, you could be the person that has planted a million seeds and never saw a single one of them actually produce fruit. But then 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, someone could come along and God could use that person to harvest all of the fruit. And when you guys get to heaven, both of you, God's not looking at this guy and saying, well, dude, you got him across the finish line, but you just sowed the seeds. Uh-uh, no, 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 no. It's not how it works. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what both those guys get. At the end of the day, if you're exhausted, 
because you've been knocking on the same door over and over and over again with the same person. You guys know I'm, I'm playing this, I'm playing this rock and roll band. I got you excited to do it too. So we're in it together, baby. Come on. We love it. <laughs> but why do I do it? That's one, because I love to play drums. Or two, because all my bandmates are the people I've known forever. They're all lost. I've been doing this thing for like two years. And I feel like I'm further behind the starting line than just at the starting line. But that's okay. Because God's doing the work in their hearts in ways that I don't even get to see. And I might not ever see it come to fruition. But guess what? God doesn't call me to that. God calls me to be faithful, to keep going, to keep my head up, keep looking for the opportunities that he places in front of me to sow seeds. And I pray every day that I get to see some of that fruit. But at the end of the day, if I don't get to, that's okay. God's plan doesn't look the same as mine does. But I'm gonna trust him with it. Our job is to be faithful, to continue our mission to make disciples. Paul had to pivot his whole plan, work a job, stick around, grinding out for years. He's never even stayed in the city that long. At least I don't think he has. But what happened? God used that faithfulness not to reach Ephesus, but so all of Asia could hear the good news. Do you think Paul even knew that that happened? Do you think Paul knew that he reached all of Asia because of his faithfulness in the city of Ephesus? true answer is, well, I don't know, maybe. It's fun to think about. Probably not. But I've used all the time that we've got. So let me pray. And then we're going to go watch Andrew McCutcheon hit his 2,000th hit. Amen. Amen. Father God, thank you for uh, your word. God, thank you for texts that we can read and we can wrestle with. Um, but even in those more difficult wrestling texts, your spirit, who is our helper, still illuminates the truth of your word. God, thank you that the Bible isn't as complicated as we think, that at the end of the day, all of it points to Jesus Christ. God, I pray for the person here today that has been saved for moments or years, but haven't gone public with it through baptism. God, we know that it doesn't save them, doesn't make them any spiritual, but it is an act of obedience that you want from them. God, give them the courage to take that step. God, I pray for the person that's just comfortable, that's just complacent, the person that's lived here their whole lives, same neighborhood, same people, no new friends person. God, would you... uh? first continue to remind me that that's, that's me, even the two years that I've lived in Gannisburg. But God, would you um, smack that out of us? God, would you move our hearts in such a way that allows them to break again for the people in our lives? For my neighbors, for my bandmates, for my siblings. Lord, help us to not become complacent in our mission to make disciples. And God, I want to pray for the person that's been tilling the soil and sowing the seeds and watering and just feels like every time they put a seed down, it gets picked up and they have to start all over again. Lord, would you fill them with your spirit this week? Lord, would you fill them with your spirit now? Comfort them. Give them an energy, a a new 
excitement that they haven't felt in a while. God, send them some encouragement to keep going. God, help them to know that it doesn't matter if they're on plan A or plan AAA. That our job is not to produce fruit, that our job is to be faithful, to continue to sow seeds, to continue watering them, and trust you with the result. Father, be with us. God, be with Andrew McCutcheon as he hits number 2,000. In Jesus' name, amen.